you'll open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. We are getting close now to finishing these first 10 verses. We're going to do that tonight in our study. Uh, one of the problems, if there, if you can call it a problem, a verse-by-verse study, is that you have to do a, a lot of repetition. I know that many of you are already very well aware of the issues that exist in the first and second chapters and what we're dealing with here in, in uh, Galatians uh, chapter 2 especially here. But one of the problems of the verse-by-verse studies, I say, is going back and you have to repeat. Uh, if I was sure that everybody was here for the last one, I might not have to do that as often or go back as far or say as many things. But even for those of you that are you know, here regularly and you've been through all of the studies, it's it's good for us to repeat some things because we have a tendency not to remember things from week to week. These first 10 verses are about a trip that the Apostle Paul made to Jerusalem to sit in a conference with the apostles to discuss a a doctrinal matter that was troubling the churches in Galatia. And Paul's authority as an apostle was being challenged by a group of people known as the Judaizers. They're mostly Jewish converts, or I should say... uh, it's Jewish converts to, to Christianity that were supposedly converts. And uh, they demanded that the Gentiles in Galatia, the ones who had been saved, that they should be circumcised according to the tradition of the Mosaic law. And since Paul had taught that justification is by faith alone, there was a lot of conver- uh, confusion with these new converts. They, they were wondering, were they really saved? Had they done enough? Now, you can imagine... They were already resistant to circumcision. That, that's not their custom. That's a Jewish custom. But salvation is, is more important to us than any custom that we might have. And so if they could be saved by doing something else, if that was what eternal life was dependent upon, then they're willing to do something else. And that's not much different with people today. You know, I have a lot of people that are not, have not grown up around so-called Christian uh, Christian people are doing Christian things, and so when it comes to salvation, uh, it, they think if there's just something that they can do, just something to, uh, some outward rite or some kind of ritual that they can go through, no matter how strange it might be, no matter how difficult it might be, then they're willing to do it if that means eternal life is dependent upon it. Well, the natural religion of the human race has always been that way. Our, our nature is to try to reach God through our, through our own efforts. And that started way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam sinned and uh, knew that finally that he had, he had disobeyed God, that the first thing he did was to begin to make aprons of fig leaves in order to cover his nakedness. And that's the way it's always been. People have always tried to do something to be saved. That's the preferred method. But fig leaves are not God's way. Uh, God's way is to provide salvation for us without any contribution from us. And so God won't accept fig leaves. What God did was to slay, kill animals, and took their skins and clothed Adam and Eve. And that was a picture. It was a uh, demonstration of what Christ would have to do on the cross, that blood has to be shed, that God will do this for us, and sin is not going to be forgiven in any other way. And that is essentially the underlying argument of justification by faith alone, is, which is what the book of Galatians is, is primarily about. Today I was uh, working 
on a sermon for several weeks, for a few weeks away from now, and, and where we're just going to sit down, or, well, you'll sit down, I'll stand here, and we'll just look at the doctrine of justification itself. And we're talking around it a lot, but uh, we'll, we'll get right down to what, what does that doctrine mean? What, what, what's, what's it all about? We're going to do that just a, in, in a few weeks. So the Judaizers said that Paul was not teaching the truth, not the true gospel of Christ. They, they challenged his authority as an apostle. And so not only did Paul have to defend the gospel itself, but he had to defend himself, that he truly was an apostle of Christ. Now, the man is always associated with the doctrine, and when the doctrine is wrong, that means the man is wrong. So the Judaizers were sort of having a field day when Paul is not there. He can't be personally present with the Galatians, but he hears about this, and he knows that there is a problem. And so the first thing that Paul does is just get right on this, because this is an error that just can destroy uh, the Christian faith. Uh, destroys the doctrine of justification. So he has, to, he has to get on this. Well, what he does here is to relate an incident that happened some years before. And this is when uh, he went to Jerusalem to speak to the apostles about this issue, the other apostles, about uh, circumcision. The Judaizers had already come into the Antioch church, which was the home church of Paul, and they had done the same thing there that they were doing in Galatia. So after much arguing back and forth about the issue, that church decided that they would send Paul and Barnabas and some others to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and get it all straightened out and make sure that everybody's on a unified front and then they would be able to tell all the churches in Galatia and the other places where Paul had visited and preached and all the, all the especially where the Gentiles were prevalent, to tell them what the truth of the gospel is. It's a unified front. So in Galatians chapter 2, uh, we learn the necessity of this trip uh, that Paul was sent by God. Uh, it's a trip that wouldn't have been necessarily uh, needed to be made if it wasn't for Satan always working on the inside of the church trying to destroy the unity of doctrine and the fellowship that we have with one another. Uh, Satan is always trying to sow discord. And when he can't work in one way, he'll just work in another. And one of his preferred methods is to get into the church and begin to pervert the doctrines that the church teaches. And especially this doctrine. If he can, if he can uh, do something with the doctrine of justification, confuse that and cause people to be, believe a lie, that's the foundational doctrine. And so people can't be saved unless they know the truth of it. Well, the, the subject for our last few messages has been the conference at Jerusalem. And in Acts 15, we have a more detailed account, account of what happened in the conference. Now, what we read in Galatians chapter 2 is just a brief summary. And Paul summarized it this way in, in verses 9 and 10 in Galatians 2. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. As I said, that is a very brief summary, and it doesn't give us the details of what actually happened in the conference. So what we've done, we've gone to the book of Acts, chapter 15, to look at it there and to see what happened and uh, what, what, were the, what was the discussion that went on there. So I want you to turn to Acts 15 once again, and we'll continue our discussion of this conference. And we've covered thus far the main topic of discussion, that's legalism. 
And legalism is the name that's attached to any method of justification that comes by the keeping of commandments. Now, for sure, God expects Christians to keep his commandments. But keeping those are not the way of being right with God. We keep God's commandments because we have been made right with God. And Christ uh, becomes our righteousness by his perfect obedience, which is transferred to us by faith. That's why we talk about justification by faith alone. So the means of justification, then, is the work of Christ. Uh, The instrumental cause of it is faith in the work of Christ. So in this conference, there are statements that are made to defend the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And the first one to address the people that were in the conference was the Apostle Peter. And last week we talked about the four fronts, the four different areas of his arguments for justification. And let me just give you those briefly. The work of the Holy Spirit, he says, is is one of the reasons that justification cannot be by the law, the equality of people, the weakness of the flesh, and the sufficiency of grace. All of these things, uh, because they're in play, make it impossible for justification to be by the law. And if you don't If you missed all of that, then you might want to uh, pick up a copy of CD or something and hear what that was all about. Well, then Paul and Barnabas got up to speak. And what they did was to report the uh, different things that happened on their missionary journey, all the miracles and the wonders that, that God did when they preached to Gentiles. And so their side of this is to look at the proof of what God did in these people's lives, the experience of, of seeing people come to the Lord And not once did God shut down this work because they weren't circumcising Gentiles. Then James got up to speak. He was the leader of the Jerusalem church, and he took his arguments back to the Old Testament scriptures. And he argued that the Old Testament supports the inclusion of Gentiles into the covenant of grace. And nowhere does it say that Gentiles would be required to go through the ceremonial rites of the Jews. And then he also argued from the standpoint of the certainty of God's foreknowledge. We find that in Acts 15, 18. And it's helpful as we look at that to understand that God's foreknowledge is not just that he knows what will happen, but the most important part of it is that God determines what will happen. And as you read this in Acts 15, James' argument would not have made any sense at all if God does not determine what he knows will happen. So if God said Gentiles would be brought into the covenant of grace, then we would expect that there would be demonstrations of that when the gospel is preached to them. And to James and the other apostles, the evidence was clear. God was working through the ministry of Paul, and the gospel that he preached was the correct gospel. Now, to finish that discussion about the conference, we need to look at the third part of our excursus on Acts 15, and this is the censure against legalism. Now, first we talked about part one was the bewitched by legalism, part two is the declaration against legalism, and now the censure against legalism. So we look in the 19th verse of Acts 15, and James said, Wherefore, my sentence is, or this is the, the verdict on this, my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles have turned to God. So that is the decision against legalism. And the main thought here, of course, is the issue of circumcision. But this decision is tantamount to saying, or it is a repudiation of any attempt to add any other requirement to justification than faith in Christ alone. 
And so this, this decision is against legalistic interpretation of justification. And it's also a perfect agreement with all the doctrines that Paul taught. And so it settled the question of whether Paul was teaching the right doctrine and whether the apostles were actually divided on doctrines of the Christian faith. Now, what we do today is that we divide doctrines of the church into things that are essential and non-essential. But the apostles didn't have any categories like that. And the reason they didn't was because they, are, uh, they were the foundation of the church. And they were, they were in perfect agreement on all of the doctrines of the faith, even though at times it doesn't appear to be so. And in the next part of the study, study we're going to take a look at that, where Peter dropped the ball in his, in his personal testimony, and that caused a problem. He had to be corrected. But the, the apostles were in agreement on all doctrines of the Christian faith. Now, today, we're, we're unable to do what they did. I mean, they had the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They were able to interpret directly by Holy Spirit intervention, by Holy Spirit power. And we don't have any infallible interpretations of Scripture ourselves. So there's room for disagreement among people about uh, different doctrines. And so you end up with this category of non-essentials. And even in that, there's argument because not all of us are agreed about what is non-essential and essential to the Christian faith. I have some people that say that believing the deity of Christ is a non-essential. And some say that annihilation is just a valid doctrine as eternal punishment, and it really doesn't matter what you believe about that. Some say that the scriptures are not inerrant. Some say that we can tolerate those that don't believe in the substitutionary death of Christ. There's some who don't believe in the doctrine of original sin. Some say that it's not imperative to even know about Christ in order to be saved. That the grace of God is so big and so wide that it covers everybody, no matter what you believe, as long as you are sincere about it. If you believe in God, any kind of God, then God counts that as good as faith in Christ. So what happens is that evangelical churches keep keep widening this category of non-essentials until the only essential there is is that everything is not essential. So we, we definitely do not agree with everybody on what is essential, what, is the, what are the essential doctrines of the faith. Now, Acts 15 is very specific about this essential, and so are many other places in Scripture. Grace and works are not a mixed cocktail that end up in salvation. So we can narrow down all of our definitions of essentials and talk about those. Maybe we'll do that at another time. But I'll, let me just cut it off at this point. The definitions of what doctrines are essential is what makes us the different church in Roner Park. That's why we're different than other, than other churches around us. So if we are the ugly duckling because of that, then we'll just sail on our part of the pond and quack our way to heaven. We'll be happy with that. Now, I want to come back to verses 20 and 21 in the 15th chapter in just a minute. And I want you to look at verse number 22. Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. Now, here we find just a, a real boost to Paul's ability to confront the Judaizers. The apostles decided that they would send Paul and Barnabas back with a report from the conference, and they would send others with him as witnesses. And the two that were sent are men named Judas and Silas. 
And you probably especially recognize the name of Silas. He later became Paul's traveling companion. But he was sent back along uh, with this man Judas, and we don't know for certain who that is, although there are some who think that this was the brother of Justice, who we find in uh, Acts chapter 1, who was one of the two that was... uh, that the apostles chose between when they chose Matthias for to actually become another apostle. That this may have been his brother, but that's just conjecture. Nobody knows for sure. But they are described as chief men among the brethren. Now, you look at verse number 32. It says, And Judas and Silas, being prophets also themselves, exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. Now, I think that there's something that, that really... Uh, we ought to look at here, and that is there are just some people who are standouts in the church. I mean, there are people that because of honesty and integrity, because of their steadfastness to the doctrines of Christ, they're just unwilling to, to waver on anything. They become very valuable in the church. The testimony of those type of men and women as well are, are, are very valuable to a church, to a pastor, to all of the people. And if you are one of those that's numbered among these good servants of Christ, then you are a blessing to your church. Now, in verses 25 and 27 through 27, we see more proof of their character. It says, It seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, and that means they were in perfect agreement on this, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Now, do you see that not-so-incidental notation there? where they say, beloved Barnabas and Paul. So they, they tell the people in the letter, we love Barnabas and Paul. We don't consider them to be outsiders. We're fully in fellowship with them. And that's the same as saying also we approve of their doctrine. And then going back to Judas and Silas in verse 26, men that have hazarded, hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have sent therefore Judas and Silas who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. So these are men that were willing to give up their lives for the cause of Christ. So there's no way that they're going to deny any fundamental of the faith. You know, it's so much easier when there's opposition to compromise the truth. But when standing for your doctrine means risk of life and limb, you know a person that'll do that is not going to knuckle under anybody's pressure. So they're sent along for confirmation So the Judaizers can't claim, well, Paul brought back a false report or brought back a forged report. And so they said, these men will tell you the same things that Paul says and what we said out of their own mouths. Well, what things? Well, we look at verse 23, kind of running backwards through the text. These things were the items that are in the written report of the conference. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying, Ye must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. Now someone would say there, Booyah! I mean, here, here is a direct reference to the ones that are the problem in Galatians chapter 1 that said Paul taught another gospel. These are the same ones that, that Paul said, uh, they said Paul is not an apostle. They're the same ones that challenge the authority, the same ones that Paul anathematized, same ones that insist upon circumcision, same ones that are sowing discord. This is a letter directly to them. 
And the apostle said, these guys are, it's to the church, but he's talking about them. These guys are troubling your souls, which is the same thing as saying they are subverting the gospel of Christ. And if you listen to them, their doctrine will destroy you. And so the, the report goes back to the churches. And perhaps we can see a, a little bit of why Paul was so sarcastic in Galatians too. The Galatians were doubtful about Paul. I mean, they, they pretty much helped to undermine his authority by, by questioning, questioning him and saying, well, the apostles in Jerusalem need to weigh in on this. We need to get their call because they have more authority. Well, it tells why, uh, shows us why Paul decided to tell them this story about his experience. And so he's able to go back here and with this sarcasm that we find in Galatians 2, he says, well, these high and mighty apostles in Jerusalem that you think are so great are in perfect agreement with me. You wanted their say? Here it is. They had nothing to me in the conference. They took nothing away from me. Uh, everything I said is what they say. In fact, they have confirmed everything that I said, and we shook hands on it. Now, let's do a uh, back up just a little bit more. Because we also find in this text in Galatians 15 and all these decisions that are coming down that there is a directive for the churches. So along with this decision against the legalists, there was a a matter of sensitivity to deal with, which is the fellowship between Jewish Christians and the Gentile converts. This decision that came down from the conference was not to appear to be some kind of trouncing victory for Gentiles, so notice that um, the churches are also told this. I mean, they're, they're not, not saying the Gentiles are superior to Jews because of this decision. So James goes on, he says in verse 20, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollution of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. And then verse 28 For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication, from which if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well, fare ye well. So even though the Judaizers are wrong about circumcision and the Jerusalem church had rejected all forms of legalistic salvation, there isn't any need to to carelessly offend Jewish Christians. I mean, there's still Jews living among the Gentiles that circumcise their children. They still revere the Mosaic law. law. So this is not a repudiation of the law. It's repudiation of legalism. And it's not a step back into legalism. Uh, This is not an issue of salvation. We're talking about an issue of fellowship. So how are Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians to get along? Well, the Jews aren't to, support, to force the Gentiles into submission, but neither are the Gentiles to do, thing, do things that, that purposely offend the Jewish Christians. Now, now we're getting into a different issue here. Now we're getting into an issue of Christian liberty. And that our Christian liberty, because we've been freed from the law, does not, does not uh, give us license to do everything we want to do, even though what we want to do may not in itself be wrong. Now, the first prohibition that James says, you need to abstain from pollution of idols. Now, verse 29 explains that as meat that's been offered to idols. Now, one time or another, both sides, Jews and Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, were uh, uh, offended by eating 
and not eating meat that was offered to idols. And Paul explains that in 1 Corinthians, that, that idols mean nothing, and the meat that's been offered to an idol doesn't mean anything. But if a weaker brother is offended by your practice, then you ought not to needlessly offend them. So he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. And then in the 31st verse, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Now, the most important part is, is, is not that you're able to exercise all of your Christian liberties. The most important part is seeing people saved. And so if that means that you restrict some of your liberties for the good of others, then do it. And that's because this is God's work and God's cause, not ours. So there are some things that you are allowed to do that actually hinder the work of Christ, and you ought not to do them. They may not be wrong in, in themselves, but if they cause someone else to fall or think wrongly of you, then you ought not to do them. Now, for the sake of the unity of the church, then, the advice here is not to do things that irritate others. So to coexist peacefully, Jews and Gentiles would be better off not eating certain foods. It didn't affect salvation either way, but it did affect their fellowship. But you would be surprised, well, maybe not, but uh, how, how much that Christian liberty is used as an excuse for certain things. For instance, the drinking of alcohol. Now you have churches that have uh, Bible studies, and I think an article that Gary was showing me the other day, uh, churches that even, even um, have their services hold them in a beer hall. And everybody just sits around and quaffs a few as they discuss the, the Bible. And, you know, there are, there are Christians that are just ignorant enough to fall for that, and they do it under the guise of Christian liberty, as if there's not a, not a greater reason not to do it because it's an offense. But that be as it may, there's plenty of evidence in Scripture that, that uh, grounds that we could rule out the use of alcohol. So I don't think anybody's standing on any good ground by saying you can drink alcohol because of Christian liberty. Then there's the mention of blood and things strangled. You know, that's kind of an interesting thing because that is actually a prohibition that predates the Mosaic Law. It goes all the way back to the time of Noah, that right after Noah got off the ark, they couldn't eat things that were strangled and things, and they couldn't drink the blood or, or eat anything that had the blood of the animal in it. So there are people that believe that that actually, and good Bible expositors believe that that actually transcends the law, that today that it's wrong for you to eat something that's been strangled. Or, and again, something that uh, drink the blood of, of an animal. Well, the Jews, of course, would be offended if that was done in their presence. You know, and I get offended when people eat steaks that still have the moo in them. That's a problem to me. Then there's this uh, last prohibition, which is against fornication. And that has reference to any sexual sin. And, of course, the Gentiles were notorious for every kind of sexual perversion imaginable. And I don't think that James means by this that Paul and others had not taught the Gentiles what they should do in this area, but I think this is extra precaution that they're careful not to revert back to those former ways and go back into those sins again. So this is the result of that meeting. 
Paul is vindicated in the doctrine, vindicated in his apostleship. Not only does he receive receive a, a letter of commendation, but he just receives this enthusiastic report from the apostles in Jerusalem. Now, we look back then in our text in Galatians 2, and, and I want to point out something here that's missing from the letter that was sent um, with these men to the Antioch church, but it must have been included as a verbal note to them. Paul and Barnabas deliver this as a, as a verbal note that's been given to them, and this is the consideration of the poor. Verses 9 and 10 again, and when, James, and when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision, only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which also I was forward to do. So verse 10 says, they are also to remember the poor. Now why is that note added? Well, this is because there was a consistent, ongoing problem of poverty for Christians in Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas had, at an earlier time, gone uh, there with uh, some famine relief, and that was in Acts chapter 11. Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians 8 about the overwhelming generosity of the Macedonian churches to, to help out with this problem of poverty in Jerusalem. So I think what James did was to put a bug into the ear of the other churches to continue to remember how much they were struggling there. And we're talking here about the time before the destruction of the temple and the walls of Jerusalem and the city in 70 AD. So Jerusalem was still this big destination for, for feast days and pilgrimages. And there are a lot of Christians today that go to Jerusalem because it's like a pilgrimage for them. So you go and you find the streets are lined with Christians from all over the world because people want to get close to the sights and the sounds, to the ground and smell the air where Christianity had its beginning, to walk in the places where Jesus walked. And there are thousands of people every year that go to the Jordan River to get baptized as if that meant something special or extra to them. Well, you know, when, I, when we went to Jerusalem, um, I didn't go because it was a pilgrimage. I don't know if Gary did, but I didn't, I didn't go because it was, a, it was a pilgrimage. But I will have to tell you this, it had a huge impact, a, a very big impact, just, just seeing all of those things. And Jerusalem was like that for the Jews. So there were people from all over the world that would come to Jerusalem because that's where the temple is. That's where the holy city of God is. So they made their pilgrimages. And when they did, when you had these feast days, Jerusalem would swell in, in, by thousands in population. Even the apostle Paul went back to Jerusalem for the feast days. And so there were so many people there that that just afforded a tremendous opportunity for the apostles to witness to people. And so they, they went all through these crowds and, and people were being won to the Lord. And you see those numbers mounting and mounting and mounting throughout the book of Acts. Well, the Christians in that Jerusalem church were already suffering from poverty. And now you start adding all the numbers that are coming in on top of that, and this just begins a, to be a perpetual problem. So churches in other areas would send relief to the church in Jerusalem. Now, if you go on reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you, you find that there's a lot there about the grace of giving. That giving is one of the hallmarks of the Christian faith. I mean, that is a... That is a um, a grace that is implanted to us when we're saved, just like the desire to win people to Christ. 
it's it's based upon that selfless sacrifice that we had have of Christ and since he's done so much for us then we want to give what give give everything we can but the problem is there are many people that repress the grace of giving just like they do their desire for winning people to Christ and so it's easily forgotten by a lot of us well paul took that whole thing to the next level with the Gentile churches and and showed them and taught them that this is the character of Christ, to show love and compassion for people by giving. And giving, of course, is to be a regular part of our worship services. I don't have time to preach on that particular subject, but if you're not afraid to do it, read 1 Corinthians 16 and learn something from that. And just in case you are afraid, I'm going to read it for you. 1 Corinthians 16.2 Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Now, finally, believe it or not, we we come to the end of the discussion of the ten verses. Number eight is the covenant of labor. Verse number nine, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. So the conference is over. All are agreed about what should be done. Paul and Barnabas continue to be missionaries to Gentiles and the apostles in Jerusalem would have their ministry mainly among the Jews. Both groups need the gospel. So what we have here is a division in the labor so that everybody can hear about Jesus. And that's not really a new decision. It's what was already in place. And this is not the disciples marking off their territory. Now, that's what some churches do. They mark off their territory. And if you venture into their territory, watch out, because you are about to be disfellowshipped for doing that. Now, I I would not, uh, I don't think that we should mark off territory, but I wouldn't do like someone did here uh, several months, well, it's been a little over, maybe a year or so ago, year and a half, actually came into the church and invite people to their church in our church. And uh, I don't think I would do anything like that. But um, I respect the uh, respect people and where they where they labor and so forth enough not to do it. So this is not the apostles saying, "Well, you stick to Gentiles and we'll stick to the Jews." And they didn't say, "Paul, you see what a mess you've made of things. You're trying to convert Jews and Gentiles in the same territory. Just stay with the Gentiles, leave the Jews to us." That that's not their decision. It's an agreement here that there is a big world to reach for Christ. And Paul's preaching the right doctrine, so he should continue what he's doing. And so they were encouraged to keep on preaching in the way that they had been preaching. So they shook hands, and they parted company on it as friends, and now the matter is settled. Or at least we think it should be settled. Paul isn't quite finished yet, though, with this uproar between, and the friction, I should say, between Jewish believers and Gentile converts. Now, you see, here's the thing about the apostles, and we'll, be getting, we'll get into this as we go into the next section, that the apostles were not infallible. Now, there, there are people who teach that the apostles, the apostles were infallible, but they were only infallible when they were interpreting the Word of God and when they were inspired by the Word of God to write Scripture. Other times, they're not infallible. And, and, and they prove that by sometimes doing the wrong thing. They prove that they still had feet of clay, And so in our next lesson, which you probably already read ahead to see what goes on, that there is a controversy again 
controversial issues continue here. And I told you before we ever started this or at the beginning, if you don't like controversy, you won't like Galatians because here we are beginning to plunge right into another one, starting at verse number 11. It's an interesting one too, I think, and, and the one we'll spend a little bit of time on. All right, that finishes up those first 10 verses, and we'll pray. Father, thank you for bringing us together tonight, and we thank you for this book of Galatians. And um, it's good for us to take a deeper look into the Word and to find out why things happened the way they did and, and how problems were solved and how doctrine was, was established. And we just thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to discuss that. We give you praise for all things in Jesus' name. Amen.